This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Oh, listen, I am so glad we could get together again. Hi, everybody. This is Pat McMahon by everybody. I mean, everybody across the United States, around the world. Malta, are you paying attention over in Malta? Uh, Because we've got a show that applies to every single one of you. But until we get into it, you may not necessarily relate to the subject of integrity. Well, let's ask you a question. Let's start with a question here on The God Show on this day. Um, Once in a while, now not all the time, but once in a while, but sometimes just between friends, you find yourself exaggerating events in your life. Only slightly, you understand. Only occasionally and with no intent to deceive. Now, for those of you listening in Ireland, of course, you know that's a way of life. A little exaggeration, right? Some people call it Blarney. But my author friend, my guest on The God Show, asks you the question, exaggerating events in your life, innocently, is it okay to do and not a breach of integrity? Is it not okay to do? It is a breach of integrity. Only one person can answer that, and that is my guest and yours. Stuart Brody, the author of The Law of Small Things. And Stu, are you saying that exaggerating innocently, perhaps for the sake of uh, uh, entertainment, are you saying that that's not a small thing, that that's a breach of integrity? Well, thank you, Pat. That's a, a great question. And uh, so my answer to that question is is this, that there is nothing about anything we do or say that is unimportant, that is too small to matter, or where truthfulness can be dispensed with. Now, that's the short answer. Uh, do you want a longer answer? We have an hour. Okay. Well, you know, everybody knows that when a friend of yours comes back from a fishing trip and you ask him, well, how big was the fish you caught? Well, the the chances are they're going to exaggerate. Okay. People shave their golf score. Okay. And basically when those kind of things, those kind of questions are asked, we don't really expect the truth. You know, it's almost as if we're, we're habituated into uh, a lie. And we don't even think of it as a lie because it's just a, an innocent exaggeration. The problem is that we become habituated into exaggeration or inaccurate speaking. That's a nicer way to put it. Or lying, if you want to put it more bluntly. And the problem is that where do you draw the line? between an exaggeration, let's say, about the size of the fish you caught or the golf score, well, then it starts getting into you might enhance the importance of the job you do or start embellishing on a resume or exaggerate on someone else's uh, letter of recommendation for someone. And then you get into white lying. And you see, it's kind of a slippery slope. 
the whole point of the law of, sl of small things is that you, you want to practice with the smallest possible thing. So you get into the habit of telling the truth, the habit of truthfulness. So, you know, Pat, I often when I stand before audiences, I say, well, look, a lot of you don't think that a white lie is that serious. But let me ask you this question. If we condone lying about something as small as canceling a lunch date and lying about the reason, why should we expect the president of the United States to tell the truth? And it's not a frivolous question because the root of lying is the same. You can describe the difference between a white lie and let's say Watergate as really just the complexity of the story that's being used to justify the lie. So yes, uh, exaggerating, boasting, padding, that kind of thing, it's a bad habit to get into and it leads to a habit of untruthfulness. Is it, is it all a matter of integrity, no matter what the graduated uh, level of intensity is? Well, that's another great question. I think, you know, we like to think that it is not, um, that, that we can make a, a distinction between a small thing and a big thing. But the question then is, well, where do you draw that line? I mean, how, what's a small thing? What's a big thing? How do you define that? Does anybody have a definition? You know, I, I go before groups and I gave a speech yesterday and I asked people, where do you draw that line? And nobody was able to do it. In fact, you know, people don't even really have a definition of integrity. They just sort of go with what they feel or an instinct or an intuition. Well, then you define it for us right now on The God Show. Let's start that way. You define integrity as the author of the law of small things. Okay, so I'm going to give you the bottom line definition. The basic definition of integrity is to fulfill your promises, those are, that is the promises you make explicitly and the promises that are implied in your relationships to other people and to institutions. To fulfill all promises, that's the definition of integrity. The reason it's so hard is because we tend to think of integrity as fulfilling just the promises that you make explicitly. Like if someone lends you a book and says return it in two weeks, Okay, you promise to do that. Or you promise your family that you'll show up for dinner at 7 o'clock. Or you promise your pastor you're going to go to church and be there every Sunday. You promise a sick relative that you're going to uh, visit them once a month. Those are explicit promises. But the harder part is to discern, to identify the implied promises. And they're all around us. And they're harder to see. And for that reason easier to dispense with. All right, but when you, uh, and I think it's just around the corner when you become a part of the faculty of the University of Arizona, am I right? That's correct. Will you promise me that at no time will you downgrade Arizona State University? <laughs> I can't do that. I won't. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is a man of integrity. That's right, I can't do it. I, I, I would like to, uh, because um, I would like to uh, accommodate you on that. You see, it's actually, we're laughing, you know, but it's, it's an important 
uh, process. You know what? I have a, a chapter in my book about how somebody called me and said, can you promise, will you, will you do something for me? You're going to a convention in Chicago, and there's someone really important in my field that's going to that convention. Will you put in a good word for me? And the way the story unfolds is that, you know, I said yes, but I, I really didn't want to do it. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. I, I said yes, as we often do. That's what was so great about your question, Pat, because, you know, it, it, we, we make these commitments. And then what happens is I got to Chicago and I never really wanted to do it. And I kept putting it out of my mind. And I, in the end, I forgot to do it. Now, I said I forgot, but what really was going on was that I never really wanted to do it in the first place. And I found ways to just keep putting it out of my mind. Now, of course, the integrity lesson in, in all of that was don't make commitments that you can't keep. Be very careful about what you promise. And if you mess up, which, by the way, we all do all the time, clean it up. And so I had to get back to my, I had to get back to Tucson and then call my friend and said, you know, I didn't do it. I, how can we work this out? And I had to uh, come up with a way of reaching that person that I promised to contact you know, the eminent person that he wanted me to make a recommendation to, I had to find him and apologize that I didn't do it in Chicago. And, you know, so we have to, so, so see, that's how it gets complicated. We make promises that we don't want to do, then we don't keep them. And then we have to clean it up as people with integrity do. And that's even harder than having said no in the first place. But Stuart, there are people now, there's a Buddhist monk right now in Thailand who is saying, wait a minute, I've devoted my entire life to leading as exemplary a life as I possibly can within the standards of morality that I was taught. But I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done what Stu just did, going out of his way to explain to somebody who would never have found out that you just did something more than you forgot you didn't want to in the first place. I mean, where did you learn this level of integrity? Well, on The God Show... Excellent I, choice. That's a wonder... Always suck up to the host. Well, I mean, it's I'm suck. Well, I don't know if I'm sucking up. I was going to say I'm sucking up to God, but that's a hell of a way to put it. I, <laughs> and prob- that's a, probably a hell of a word to use. But, I mean, um, I'm jumping the gun, and I'm sure you would lead me into that question. But, the, you know, the, the issue really is how, how seriously do you take your personal authenticity? Authenticity is the word I use for knowing who you are, knowing the truth about yourself, not as the culture defines you or as the culture ensnares you, but about who you know yourself to be. And ultimately, knowing who you are, who you know yourself to be, is really a dialogue with God. Mm. And that's the way I view it. Stu, you know what? You have been saying some absolutely fascinating things and also testing our feelings about ourselves and our own definitions of integrity. But, you know, there are a lot of folks right now who are listening saying, boy, what an interesting concept. I don't know whether I could do the kinds of things that Stu's talking about, 
but at least let me find out a little bit about him and his background because we just said, here's Stu Brody, and you've had a fascinating life. Do a, a one-minute bio for everybody listening. Okay, well, I can do that. If you're watching the clock, you can start now. 57, so was, 56. Okay, 53. I was born in uh, New York on Long Island. I uh, grew up in the 60s. I went to the University of Chicago, uh, where they make a joke that that's a uh, Baptist uh, university because <laughs> it was formed by rock, where atheist professors teach Jewish students. <laughs> I, isn't that great? Uh, so I was one of the Jewish students, and I found that my connection to Judaism was not really being enhanced by the kind of services. You know, in other words, the religion of Judaism was not really serving my relationship with God. And then I, I looked deeper, which is a key concept when you talk about integrity, deeper beyond the religion, beyond the conventions of religion into a direct relationship with God, which is a tremendous responsibility. We all have that ability. And we all know it exists. We've all had that conversation. And, and finally, I think after years, only several years ago, coincident with writing the book, was I able to say that I'm surrendering to God, that I, I know God. You know, it was no longer, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in God. It was not about belief. It was about knowing God. And that was a powerful moment. And that's when I realized that there's a, there's a kind of resonance between how you feel about yourself, the, the, the power of your own um, authenticity. There's a resonance between that and the presence of God. And that, that was the transformational moment. Is it a moral decision every time to practice integrity? Great question. I, I think these are great questions. I, I, I'm going to say yes, because the minute you start saying something is too small to matter, what you're really saying is my word or my, my act, my word and my, and my deed are sometimes inconsequential. And I don't think that's ever true. Like, what would you say is inconsequential about anything that you do or say? Or at least as it affects others. I mean, if you say, I'm going to go on a diet, and then you don't do it, well, the only person that you're affecting is yourself. But if you promise your spouse that you're going to uh, lose 10 pounds, because your health is important and they're concerned about your health and you don't do it, well, then that's a breach of integrity because you made a promise to someone. Remember my definition? The fulfillment of a promise to another person or to an institution. So when you have a human act not necessarily involved with veracity or trust, when you have a human act uh, that it seems to me you lot uh, many times in the same uh, general category, that it, venial sins, mortal sins, uh, uh, small promises, big promises, 
if it is a human act not having to do with promises? What if it's a human act involving violence? If I step on an ant, it's of no loss other than the loss of life to that ant's family. If I seriously injure a human being, it's against the law. Do you include that in the world of integrity? Yes. Wow. Yeah, because I think that part of what integrity is, part of what the relationship with God is, is the recognition of, and let me use the word discernment. Discernment is a powerful word because it's more than just seeing something or identifying something. It's, it, it involves, it implies uh, a definite effort to achieve knowledge. And by the way, discernment is used in Scripture a lot in both Testaments. And so if you discern um, that there's something of value that um, you're obligated to fulfill, then it becomes, an ob- it becomes a duty and therefore a matter of integrity. So uh, just to give you a very quick example, this, I think the idea that you're bringing up is, is an important one because it suggests that, well, maybe if you don't even know something's going on, well, then how can you be responsible for it? Exactly. I'm going to say, okay, right. I think, okay. I thought that you were, you know, you were getting at that. And, you know, Mother Teresa said, well, you know, what I'd like people to do is be concerned about the pollution in the Ganges River that's killing people as much as they would be concerned about a river that's polluted in their backyard. Mm-hmm. That's a very high standard. You know, what, one of the things that I, I gave yesterday in my talk, and I tend to do this, I say, how many of you have stock portfolios that include mutual funds? And people have various ways of, if you're fortunate enough to have assets, a lot of people have mutual funds. And I ask, well, how many of you have looked through those mutual funds to see the stocks that are comprised by those funds? Because you may notice that some of the companies in those mutual funds are companies that commit environmental violations, uh, labor violations, uh, right? They, they, they're polluters um, and, you know, third world kind of violations. And, uh, and, and some of those stocks are tobacco stocks. And I mean, the point is how many of those stocks um, are companies whose practices you abhor? And the people say, well, who has time to do that? Who has time to look through that? Well, that's true. I mean, you can't spend your whole day and your whole life finding ways to practice integrity. But you can certainly, because that's exhausting, and you're not going to be able to solve everything. But you can spend time trying to look at the things right in front of you, paying attention, right? That's what God demands. That's what God, that's the only thing that God asks. Pay attention. And then you start seeing things all around you. And that's what discernment is. Ever been a little league coach? Uh, actually, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. We've no. certainly done a great deal of examination of your personal dossier, but they had 
no idea what the answer to that question was going to be, but I'm glad you said yes, because it'll bring you even closer to my question. Have you ever sent a kid up to bat with the instructions to tell the umpire when he's blown a call and that it actually was a strike and not a ball? No, I don't think I've ever done that. Well, then you lack integrity. Well, I plead guilty. I, I don't... Uh, look, I mean, I have committed so many things. I wrote a book with 31 chapters, and I often tell my audiences and my students, you know, I, I've committed most of these. How do you think I describe them so amply? <laughs> that, and and that's, a, that's a powerful thing. You know, this whole idea of baseball... Like, what I, one of the questions I have in the book that you just alluded to when you were reading that, that, that first scenario opening the show was, you know, you're an amateur um, athlete and you, I, I forget exactly how I did it. I think it was a tennis match and the, the ball comes to you, it's served to you. It's clearly in. Yes. Line judge, you know, show, says it's out, but you know, it's in. Do you protest the call and try to correct the judge? Well, you know, most people said that they would. And I think it's fascinating because, and I think that's where your question was. You know, the, the, that's a powerful thing to do. But think about the major leagues before replay where people would routinely, runners would routinely get to first. They knew they were out. I mean, a runner is in the best position to know he's in front of the ball, right? You know, the, and this came into a startling uh, display when there was a game between the Tigers, I think, and the Indians, two very cold cities, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and, and the pitcher had a perfect game. It's only happened 23 times, you know, in the history of baseball. And a perfect game not only going into the ninth, but he had two outs in the ninth. And the runner arrived um, uh, late. He was out. Perfect game was, was, was completed, but the ump missed the call. I remember the game so vividly. Right? And the, and the ump, remember the next day, the ump saw the replay, and he was tearful. He went to the pitcher, and he apologized. And the pitcher, showing integrity and compassion, forgave him but he blew the call and what we forget is the runner saw the play the runner knew he was out and he didn't say anything what should he have done he should have said look i i, I know this is unusual my teammates may hate me i know we you snooze you lose is an american custom okay no harm but um the guy had a perfect game going. He'd be number 24 instead of 23. I need to stand up and do something. You know, integrity comes down to that. Now, I don't know if it would have made a difference. Baseball's not used to that. If a player gets away with something in all sports, well, you know, it's like I just said it. You snooze, you lose. That's a moral principle in our country. And that's not a good principle. You know, that's, that's not the way that to, to establish integrity. It would certainly have made a difference in his career because the following season, he probably would have wound up as one of the tour guides at the Desert Botanical Garden. 
Well, we you see, we think that, but what if he just went back to the dugout, the Cleveland dugout, and said, I guess it was the Detroit dugout, I forget which team was which, and said, look, fellas, I know we would have had one man on, right, with two outs in the ninth, and we might have scored and we might have won the game. But we were down several runs, and this was the right thing to do. We're in a sport, you know, where fair play is what is called for, and that's what I did. And, and I his did. teammates and his teammates would have charged out of the dugout saying, have you been reading Stuart Brody's books again? <laughs> right. Where did you get a hold of that book? You know, we got to trash those books. We got to burn those books. But, I, you know, I, I wrote the book not to make people feel bad, but to make them feel good. That they can actually, well, you know, it's, you really raise a great question. I, I, all these are great questions. I love talking to you. I hope we can do this again because, you know, you're getting to the heart of it. It's, it's like, who wants to read this book? I mean, it's going to be read by people who already are committed to a kind of way of life where integrity is important, where self-improvement is important. Authenticity is understood. They've had experiences. Maybe those experiences were with God. And they want more of that. Because ultimately, integrity is a spiritual experience. Now, some people are going to be too smart for this. They're going to say, I know what it is. I'm just going to do it, like a Nike commercial. You know, I have, I know the right thing. I do the right thing. And I have integrity. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody knows the right thing all the time. And nobody just does it. It's too hard. And by the way, and this is probably going to be the most controversial thing I say, nobody has integrity. When I say that, I mean nobody possesses it permanently. It's not possessable. What it is is, some, is an opportunity to practice it in each particular incident that you face in the course of your, your daily life. Do you, think, do you think that Jesus was a person who in his 30-plus years, practiced integrity all the time? Well, he acknowledged his weaknesses, but his, the power came from his commitment, from his intention, and from his knowledge. Remember, he was skilled and, and, and knowledgeable about Scripture, about the Old Testament. He mm -hmm. understood all of that. I mean, he studied God's Word, and his goal was to try to bring the people, the Jewish people, Hebrews, into alignment with God's word. So he was up to something very, very big, to say the least. And uh, his, his goal, I think, was to enhance discernment. And, of course, he led that effort himself by his, the passion for discernment, but, but he tried to get the people to do that. And... You know, and, and it's really interesting because this is the God show, not not the political show. And we're not going to talk about politics unless you drag me kicking and screaming. But, you know, leaders don't really do that. They don't say political leaders and, and all kinds of leaders. They don't talk about increasing your awareness to your commitments. They, they talk about what 
I can do for you if you just trust me and how wrong the other guy is. Uh, that that was not the way Jesus operated, and it's not the way any kind of leader should operate. And that's what we're really seeing in this country, you know, people hurling beliefs at each other, but never trying to encourage each other to reach common ground through the discernment of what is right. And that's a sad thing. Get ready to kick and scream, Stu. This is Stuart Brody on The God Show. And the kicking and screaming in this case is not because of the fact that he's talking to us from the glamorous parts of upstate New York that right now have 407 feet of snow uh, <laughs> preventing him from coming back home to Tucson. But I want you to kick and I want you to kick and scream because I am going to be talking about politics, not uh, not partisan politics under any circumstances, because then it really gets to be boring. But integrity in campaigns, just campaigning in general. When was the last time that you looked at anyone running for public office successfully or unsuccessfully and said, well, now there's somebody that I think is a representative of integrity, the kind of stuff that I write about in my books. He's thinking... He's thinking, ladies and gentlemen, this pause brought to you by the Integrity Institute of Stuart Brody, who's right now desperately looking back past the last campaign and perhaps stopping around 50-something in Harry Truman. Well, I, no, I don't have to go back that far. <laughs> in, if um, any of your listeners from Illinois who are over, let's say, 40 years old, will remember a politician named Philip Rock. He was the president of the Illinois Senate. And I dedicated the book to him. Because when I was a young politician, we hadn't gotten, I guess I interrupted my own biography. I exceeded the 60 seconds you gave me. <laughs> and I didn't get the, my own book. <laughs> but I, uh, you know, I, and, and, I was young. I, I was 33, and Senator Rock appointed me to a very big commission. It was the railway system of Chicago, and anybody who's been in Chicago knows that that's, that's a huge enterprise. You bet. So I'll make the, the story short. The story's actually in the book. And I came to him uh, one, uh, one day, and I said, you know, all my colleagues on the board want to vote for this budget. And I don't really think the budget is fair to the working people who are actually driving the buses and running the trains. Then he asked me a little bit about it and what that meant. And, uh, I, and then he said, well, what do you want from me? And I said, well, I want you to tell me basically how to vote. I mean, you put me on the board. I mean, you're my sponsor. And he said, look, I put you on that board because I trusted your judgment. Mm -hmm. You get out of my office, go back to mm -hmm. your office, and figure out what's the best thing for the people of Chicago. Wow. And I thought to myself, really? Who, talk, who talks like that? And, but that's the lesson he gave me, and that was a long time ago, at the start of my career. Then I, I moved back to New York from Chicago, and I got very involved in politics and ran for Congress myself. And in the 25 years I was in, in politics in New York, 
Nobody ever said that to me. Nobody ever talked to me like that. Where is he now? That, well, he died uh, just a couple of years ago, but he was uh, very prominent in Illinois after his uh, presidency of the Senate. Uh, he did other things and that were uh, really in the public good. You know, he's, he was one of the, these old school, Pat, you know, like the guys who you know, really were committed to making life easier for people. That was his goal. You know, he came up out of a Jesuit training. He was, I think, only a year away from being ordained and then said, you know, I'm not sure this is right for me and became a lawyer, okay, and then went into politics and, and by all accounts, served the people really well. But how interesting that he is a politician that is as memorable as he is as an influence in your life and he was an Illinois politician where governors wind up after the state house in a special cell block in Joliet. I know. And uh, yeah, right. The cell block is the biggest in the country. It's, it, I don't know any governor that hasn't been indicted. It's in, well, in New York, where I also come from, um, you know, it's, it's the same thing. The, the leaders of the house and the Senate, are both in jail, and uh, it's 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 really a, a shameful thing. But you know, I, it's and I know some of these people. I, I understand what they did, and I understand how they did it. There's no excuse. But there, it's just such bald-faced self-interest. You know, they 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 take money, or they try to engage in influence for their kids. You know, they, they just cross the line. But for the rest of us, we, we don't necessarily do that. We just miss opportunities to be better people. And we end up, and by missing those opportunities over and over again, we end up in the situation where we don't have the same kind of authenticity that we, we would have if we paid more attention. And we also hurt people. And th- that's really what, maybe we could talk a few minutes about because, you know, I think what happens is that people are not interested in, in really seeing what's going on around them, uh, their mistakes, the, their breaches of integrity. I can give you some examples. I mean, just starting with the white lie, people white lying like that. And they call it white, you know, because you stay pure. You have the impression that you're pure after telling it. That's a missed opportunity to, to live a life of truthfulness, to habituate yourself to truthfulness. But let's go back, let's go back if we can, Stu, because I don't want to run out of time before we really okay. pursue what you were alluding to, and that is how a lack of integrity hurts people. And I'm thinking most particularly when it hurts a generation of people growing up not expecting integrity from their leadership and the kind of loss that takes place when children grow up, not even understanding that integrity is expected of them. Let's talk about the impact of a lack of integrity. Wow. Well, okay. So that's the, that's, our major issue as a culture. It's integrity starved. It feeds on promise breaking. 
how many times do we cringe when someone, when we're on the phone with whatever, a bank or some automatic call and, and we hear your calls are very important to us. And we know that's not true because if they were more important, we wouldn't be on hold so long. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, someone said to me just this morning, a few hours ago, he said, you know, I, uh, when I get calls from clients, this is directly to your point. When I get calls from clients and I don't want to do the work for that client because they're too troublesome, I'll say, I'm sorry, I'm booked. And he was telling me that his son, his young son, eight years old, nine years old, said, Dad, you're not booked. You're, you're accepting clients. Why did you tell him you're booked? Well, then he had to explain to his son why he was lying. And I spent a little time with him, and we figured out how you could tell the truth to a client without insulting them, but also be, be truthful so that your son wouldn't learn a bad habit. So you're right. I mean, the kids are growing up watching their parents do these simple things like white lying and understanding that, well, that is that the habit that I'm expected to follow? It's almost as if kids are, you know, the, the clean slate, the tabula rosa. They want to be truthful. Mm-hmm. I think that's our nature. We want, we want to be good. And then we get, you know, habituated. And that's the real harm. I mean, the, I think ultimately the harm is that we don't, I, I want to say that we don't help our kids see the possibility of integrity in, in almost everything we do. But it's also that we don't. I mean, we can't. We can't see. We're, we're teaching them, as you said, to, to to join a culture where truthfulness is no longer expected. It drives me crazy when I see commercials, in particular, the many messages that often have such impact because they're intended to have impact on us. So, so we buy stuff. But the one where the dad whispers to the child, "No, no, tell them I'm not here." A, a, a seemingly a harmless lie probably is not going to have a tsunami effect, but you wonder what kind of an effect it has on the child who is now being asked to lie on behalf of this this male leadership figure in his family. Oh my! I it, I just cringe. I, I'm gonna if you can give me 30 seconds, I will reel off things that people do all the time that breach integrity and that are not regarded really as breaches. You have a minute, you have a minute and a half, Stu, go ahead. Okay. So we talked about the white lie. People don't think it's a, a breach of integrity because it doesn't hurt anybody. How about not getting back to people promptly when someone expects you to return a call and we don't, when we say we use the excuse, well, we're too busy. Well, if kids are watching, it teaches them that you can disregard things that you don't want to do, even though you promise to do them. How about the way many of us take free dinners from our friends who have expense accounts? I mean, that means that that is going to be put on the expense account of a company, and that company is not going to pay taxes on that, on that money because it was called an expense, but it's just a dinner between friends. But we do it. We all do it. How about buying stuff on a street corner because it's cheap? And we know, or we should know, that it's stolen or counterfeit. 
but we buy it because it's convenient. Then you get into things like, you know, public radio. I know this is controversial, but public radio may be public, but it can't exist without individual contributions. And I hope some of your listeners, you know, will engage me on this because I think this is a fascinating debate. But we know that they that they can't exist solely on the government subsidies and corporate sponsors. So they have these 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 shows that these uh, promotions, you know, fundraising. But do you know that barely 10% of people who listen to public radio actually contribute? Now, why do why 90% of the listeners leave it up to somebody else to, to sustain mm. that burden when they're using So you get, and the handicap sticker, people just rolling into oh. those spots. Oh. Okay, so that, right, it's a big one. Okay, uh, and then you get into things like how we, we were appalled at the illegality of, of some corporate practices, but we'll stand by and watch our bosses engage in that, you know, or we see sexual harassment in the workplace and we don't say anything. So that's a matter of integrity too. You asked about, you know, why is our culture, why is our culture drenched in, in, you know, the lack of integrity, or maybe I put it that way. You know, when advertisers get on and make these outlandish product claims, they're lying, you know? It's, and, and politicians doing the same thing, making these exorbitant boasts about what they can do. They're lying. And they're hurting us. That was your question. We're hurt by all these things because they're all breaches. And people just don't exercise the discernment to see it. So that was the goal of the book. It's like we can do better by just paying attention to the smallest things. But Stu, Stu, how am I ever going to wind up with the kind of courage that it takes to be ethical 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of my life? You know, okay, how many, how many seconds do I have for this one? <laughs> well, since Sorry. we're talking about my life, as long as you want. <laughs> Thank you. I, I agree. Uh, you start small. Everything is about the first step. You know, one of the quotes I have in the book that's very popular is the one by Arthur Ashe. Yes. Now, they asked Arthur Ashe, you know, how, how did you become the best player, the best athlete in the world in a country club sport when you were born in, in an inner city? And you're expecting this tremendous answer. I mean, how, what, what was it that could catapult him? from those circumstances into the top of that sport. And he said, well, you start with what you know, um, you do what you can, and you keep going. Now, I think I'm paraphrasing, but it's do, do what you know, uh, do the best you can, and don't stop. And think about that. Think about how any of us succeed in anything. It's really that. One of the things you touch on in your book, uh, The Law of Small Things, is the the civility and lack of it in our society. We see civility and are amazed that people are showing uh, that kind of uh, genteel attitude toward another human being. And we're surprised anymore because of the absence of it in our society. Civility in public places 
the lack of civility. Oh, I guess, wait a minute, we're back into the world of politics again, aren't we? I guess so. Yeah. Well, civility is, is integrity. Civility is a form of integrity. It's the loyalty to people you don't even know. And I think in our culture, we tend to discount that because we don't know them. We're too absorbed in ourselves. But ultimately, civility is the obligation to people we don't even know. And that kind of, that kind of simple axiom is something we can carry with us. That's one of those things that we don't even have to have as a sign on our office wall. We can memorize that. But do you see do you see any time in the future, particularly with communications being what it is, particularly considering technology the way it is and the mass of thoughts, ideas, and corruption that we're faced with on a daily basis? Do you see a rosy future or have you begun to think in terms of the rest of your life being devoted to pessimism? Well, that's a great, great question. Okay. You know, it's, it's not a pretty picture, but that's not what integrity is about. It's integrity is about seeing what your obligation is and what really God wants of you and then undertaking it. Because we don't know how this is going to unfold. We don't know how God is going to configure it. But we need to be ready. So if you're pessimistic and giving up on the challenge of being a better person, acting with integrity, discerning your obligations to others, making contributions to others, well, if you, if you fail to do that, well, you're not going to be ready. You're going to be taken by surprise. And it's not just about the end result. It's not about a reward. It's about the, the, the kind of feeling that you can have about yourself as someone who is creating authenticity in every single minute. Not because someone demands it, not because of a reward you get, because it's just good. It's the right thing to do. And it takes a special practice, and sometimes it's not obvious. But I predict that if you do it, step-by-step in small things, you'll start to realize that it has a value no matter what happens to society, to politics, whether the system is going to right itself or not. It's only up to us. And if enough of us do it, well, then the system will right itself. In answer to the question that you have over there in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, no, besides how can I ever be warm again, is... The answer to the question, who is this guy that's on The God Show? Stuart Brody, founder of Integrity Intensive, one word, Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm concentrating on decision-making and leadership training, soon to be a part of the faculty of the University of Arizona, where he will bear down with integrity uh, for the rest of his life. But By the way, the law of small things, uh, really, really neat cover with the guy crossing his fingers behind his back because, as your subtitle suggests, he's creating a habit of integrity in a culture of mistrust. 
But what is the law of small things? Is that you making fun of the fact that I'm only 5'7"? <laughs> no, uh, if anything, it's, it doesn't matter how big you are. It's the, it's the, the size of your deeds that, that count. The, the law of small things is really 31 laws because each chapter has a law and they're in the beginning of each chapter and they come down to the basic rules, the rules of the road. If you want to practice integrity, here are the laws. And of course I say that they're laws, but they're guides. I mean, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a difference between a law because if you break the law, well then you're somehow bad. But if you, if you call it a guide, well, then it's um, something to help you along the way. And so I did call it a law, but they really are guides. Uh, the law is just, um, I suppose, a more compelling title. But the, the fundamental law of integrity, the law of small things, is pay attention, try to find the duty that exists, the promise, within every act that's required of you or that you appear, every act that engages you with the world, Try to understand not what you want to do, not what your self-interest is, but what you owe the community, what your contribution can be, and then you're going to be all right. That's what it comes down to. But doesn't it just come down to the words that came out of the life and philosophy of, well, I started to say another author, but the authors of these rules... Uh, are international and they're spoken in every tongue that exists. And that is the golden rule. Is that what you're talking about? No, I actually am not. You know, the golden rule is, is a very powerful way of looking at integrity. So the idea that do unto others as you would have them do unto you is an interesting way of, of posing self-reflection. But what if you're obsessed with self-interest? Well, then you'd want the other person to, to do something that's self-interested just because you're self-interested. In other words, what you want them to do for you as you would do for them may not be the best thing, may not be the right thing. It's just what you want. So the, what we try to do in the book is to make the distinction between self-interest, something that you want, a quid pro quo from somebody else. You know, that's the danger of the golden rule. It's like, I'll do this for you. I'll wash your hands. You, you wash mine. And we, it's not intended that way, but you can see how it's fall into that. I don't think and that so, it was the intention of the original authors. However, it was not, it was not, but isn't that the way we sometimes, Think about all the language that we use that has fallen into disrepair, the, the pervasiveness of it. Like, the, you know, you snooze, you lose, no harm, no foul, looking out for number one, fake it till you make it. You know, I, uh, you, know you can't fight City Hall. Uh, what are some of the other cliches? That, you know, the, the language becomes, or even things like um, integrity is what I know in my heart. Well, that's a feeling. Now your feeling may be wrong. You may not like somebody. You may hate somebody. Now, how is that helpful to practice integrity? So, you know, so integrity is not just the golden rule. It's not just what you want somebody else to do because 
uh, for you because that's what you would do for them. Well, it's more about seeing what's good ultimately for the community, for your con- what's your contribution? How valuable is your contribution? Not because you're self-interested, but because you acknowledge it as good for the community. I mean, that is what we're missing. The beginning of the program, Stu, uh, we were talking a lot about integrity in sports. And, and I wanted to go back with the thought of this yardstick, the varying degrees of integrity, seemingly not black and white, but applicable on an infinite scale of gray, unless I'm misunderstanding. Let me give you an example in sport. You were talking about somebody fudging his golf score. If he fudges his golf score just to make himself feel a little bit better that day and that it wasn't four hours blown instead of just taking a nice walk, what if he just he just added uh, a couple of strokes to his buddy's scorecard, took a couple of strokes off of his, no harm, no foul, I believe, would be applicable in this case. At least that's what they would be saying to one another. I'm sure. But what if they were all playing for money per hole? What if it wasn't a great deal of money, but a standard boys out, night out, day out, uh, a morning out on the golf course, and it was a few bucks a hole? And if he was fudging the scorecard then, is it a greater loss of integrity than if there was no money involved? Well, I think a lot of people would say yes, because he's cheating. He's cheating other people. But in the first example, where there's no money involved, but he's just kind of cheating himself. Well, I would say that's as serious because he's habituating himself to a lie, to a pattern of dishonesty. You see, one of the phenomenon of this uh, of this whole arena, and people have written books about it, is people tend to cheat a little bit. So they fudge a little bit on their taxes. They they pad an insurance claim. They you know they puff on a resume. Yes. They're doing right. Okay. So if if we we do that, and we tend to think of it as inconsequential, it's just a little lie. It's just a small thing just like the golf score that you just mentioned. But it's like a crack in the foundation. You know, it's just a little thing. You don't pay attention. Pretty soon, the crack pervades the entire structure, and it falls down. And I go back to that point I made. Well, people say, well, I'll be ready for the big things. But how ready are they? How People know it's wrong to text. But how often do we do it anyway on the road, making it harder on somebody else? because they have to be more cautious to watch out for us. You know, it, it's, we know things are wrong, but we, we do them, and the white lie, we kind of know they're wrong. Everybody answers the, the question in the book, uh, yes, the white lie, that's a breach of integrity, but we all do it. But it's, and, and that's a kind of double standard. And how long can you contain that? It's kind of like standing on a dock, you know, putting one foot on the boat, and one foot on the dock, you know, and the boat starts to move, and you don't know which way to go. Go for the dock or go for the boat, and then you find that yourself right in the middle of the lake. 
The law of small changes. Small, the, the law, law, the law of... <laughs> well, that would have been a small change, I suppose, particularly for the guy who's having a difficult time making that decision. The Law of Small Things by Stu Brody. And uh, Stu, listen, I've only got 30 seconds for you to answer this. When you get back to Arizona, in other words, where God intended people to live, when you get, when you get, <laughs> you get back to Arizona, you're going to do any... Uh, any bookstore signings or anything like that? There's a lot of folks that are listening right now from here who would like to meet you. Well, you know something? I, let's do it. I mean, if you have any suggestions, I'll do it. I've been focusing on Tucson, but I'd love to come up to Phoenix. It's just another hour and a half. And uh, let's just stay in touch with it. I'd love to do it. I'd love to meet your listeners. Listen to this for the antithesis of what you wrote about. Uh, yeah, Stu. Uh, yeah. Uh, let me get back to you on that. I'll take care of the whole thing. It might take a little while, but uh, I'll call you. <laughs> this is Pat McMahon, and I hope that you've been listening with integrity. If you have, it means that you stayed with us for the whole thing so that you could meet Stu Brody and hopefully remember the name. Star Worldwide Networks bringing you all the time The God Show.